This writer can only do what God allows, and God is allowing him to do what he does to get a the attention of the remaining people who still have a chance to call upon Jesus in faith. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've spent the past couple of weeks looking at the four horsemen of the apocalypse as we begin to look at the judgments that will come to pass following the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation period. As Dr. Brogy began to note yesterday, the Bible tells us that those who die and who have not trusted in Jesus Christ for their eternal salvation will end up going to hell. And the word often used in the Old Testament is Sheol, specifically unrighteous Sheol. Let's rejoin Pastor Brogy now as he gives us further insight into Sheol and uses the patriarch Jacob's final words as an example. Sometimes you will hear pastors and even theologues very sloppily just say, well, Sheol is the place of the grave. It's the place where the body is placed. No, that's not accurate. Sheol best describes the place where the soul goes. Think about this for just a moment. He says, I am going to go and meet Joseph in Sheol. What, his body in the place of a grave? He's under the impression that his body had been eaten by animals, that there was nothing to bury. He was looking forward to being reunited with Joseph as a believer. Now, the word rendered grave in some translations is the Hebrew word Sheol, and it describes the place that the soul goes at death. Again, think your way through this. Later on, Genesis chapter 50 Jacob has died, and we're told that he's mummified. We read in 50 and verse 1, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. That's his name, Israel or Jacob. That's what God's people do with those who want to carefully follow the Scripture. They bury their loved ones. Now, he's in Egypt, so it's a little more involved process. He mummifies him, but he doesn't burn him in a furnace. Now, look, if you want to burn your loved one in a furnace, you're welcome to do that, and I will happily serve you, and I won't bring it up at your funeral, all right? And don't think you've got in that little box some special box of ashes of Uncle Ed. Uncle Ed was burned in the same furnace as Aunt Sally and Martha and a hundred other people. You think they go in there and wipe out every single ash from the previous guy? I don't know how many people you got in your little box, but it's not just Uncle Ed. I'm just dealing with you truthfully. But God's people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rebecca, Sarah... Ananias, Sapphira, John the Baptist, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul assumes you bury your loved ones. I just did a funeral for a couple. Audrey and I pray for them almost every day. They lost their 13-month-old little baby. You think they're going to take that little precious girl and burn her in a furnace? Into a piece of ash? Not in your life. Precious little body was laid in a grave. And they kissed that little girl just like Joseph kisses his daddy who's now dead. When God himself does a funeral, the last chapter in the book of Deuteronomy, he, Yahweh, buries Moses. God gave you 
a pattern. And if you want to do it God's way and you want some punch to your funeral, don't have a picture down here or even a little box. Have a real casket with a real person. It will be your last will and testament to reach some of your loved ones and friends and neighbors who only gather for marriages and funerals. And if the pastor is preaching the word of God, you might win them to Jesus. Now, 40 days were required for it to be mummified. For such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. So there's 40 days for the embalming process and then another 30 days to mourn. Beyond those 70 days, Pharaoh grants Joseph traveling mercies to take his daddy back to the land of Canaan, to the promised land where he wants to be buried. Now, don't miss this in chapter 49. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he brings them all, blesses them. He drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. I love that. When you add the 70 days and the time it took then to travel to Canaan, another seven days to mourn there in Canaan, obviously several months had gone by. But here's Jacob. He's in his deathbed. He pulls the covers up pulls his feet under the cover, smiles in the face of the Lord, and the Bible says he was gathered to his people. What people? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. In New Testament theology, we'd say he went home to be with the Lord. Now, please do not miss that. He was gathered to his people. He had been dead for two months when he's buried. But the moment he died, he was gathered to his people. He breathed his last. The Hebrew says he, he yielded up his spirit. Ten weeks after he had died, he's buried. Understand Sheol does not underscore so much the place where the body is placed as it does where the soul goes. And in distinguishing righteous Sheol from unrighteous Sheol, Jesus in Luke 16 tells a parable. Maybe it's not a parable. If it is a parable, it's the only parable with a name in it, but it changes nothing. Now, the poor man died and was carried away to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried in Hades, very conscious. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. When you come into the New Testament, because it's written in Greek, they take the word Sheol, and they don't translate it Sheol. They translate it, that's the Hebrew, they translate it with the Greek word, Hades. If you read the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, every time Sheol appears, they render it Hades. And so here Jesus is distinguishing a rich man who dies and goes to Hades, Sheol, a place of torment, conscious torment, where he's very aware, where he has memory even of his family. And he goes to Sheol where the poor man goes to Abraham's bosom, and one doesn't go to heaven and the other hell because they're rich or poor, but because one's a believer and the other is an unbeliever. And so when a lost man dies today, he goes to Sheol or Hades. Hades is still a real place. But on this side of Calvary, righteous Hades, righteous Sheol, also called Abraham's bosom, no longer exists. Today when you die, the moment you die, you go home to be with the Lord in a place that is given many terms in Scripture. Paul says, for instance, we're of good courage. I say and prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Heaven is called, among other things, a home. 
to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul uses that same word, paradisus, to describe what happened to him on that occasion. He says, I was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. When he writes to the Philippians, he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is not a loss because we don't sleep in a grave unconsciously. Only your body is placed in the grave. To die is gain, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be where? With Christ, for that is far much better. And so Sheol in Hebrew, Hades in Greek, originally has two compartments, unrighteous Sheol for the lost and righteous Sheol for the saved, also known as Abraham's bosom. And someday, Sheol or Hades that exists right now, if someone dies and they go to Hades or Sheol unrighteous, this conscious place of tournament, someday God is going to take Hades and he's going to cast it into Gehenna and the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. We'll study that when we come to Revelation 20, so hold on. So within that biblical framework, I want you to understand what's going on here in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 8. I looked and behold an ashen horse... And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Since this is the New Testament, then you know that Hades here is a reference only to unrighteous Sheol or unrighteous Hades, the place where unbelievers go. And so he's reminding us that death is followed with Hades, that death in Hades was following with him. God is simply saying it's death that claims the body, but it is Hades, it is Sheol that claims the soul. That you cannot crawl up into some grave and be buried with a bunch of dirt and somehow hide from God Almighty. God wants you to know that death, physical death, does not end at all because Hades follows death. You were made to live forever. Your soul will be here in existence long after the sun and the moon and the stars are gone. You will live forever and ever and ever, endless, timeless, eternally in a place that God wants you to go called heaven, the Father's house, the new Jerusalem, paradise home, or into the lake of fire, Gehenna, so that's the name of the devastation. Still with me? All right. I'm almost done. Let's think about the extent of the devastation. Verse 8. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them, notice, over a fourth of the earth. Please note, authority was given to them. Like Satan, he could only do to Job what God allowed. This writer only can do what God allows him to do. And like with the other riders, this horse too is on a leash and God has the end of the leash. In either case, when he comes, he is given permission, the Bible says here, to destroy a fourth of the earth. Now, if that were to happen in the next seven years, there's 7.5 billion people on the earth that means that 1,875,000,000 will die when this rider comes. By the way, there has never ever been any kind of plague or pestilence in the history of humanity that has ever taken out a fourth of the planet. 
That's why the preterist view that says this is all history, it all happened on or before 70 AD. That's why the amillennialist who spiritualizes God's word, who says the church is the new Israel, that God's done with the Jewish people, which is planting seeds of anti-Semitism in our world. That's why they are so wrong because they have to just write off and spiritualize the numbers that God gives in this time. There's never been a war in human history that has even come close to taking these kinds of numbers. Now, these people are confirmed unbelievers, and they go to a place of judgment. Their death is followed by Hades. And by the way, those who are left behind to witness it, this is an expression of God's goodness. He doesn't wipe out the planet all at once. He takes seven years to bring these judgments. Why? Because it's his final wake-up call. God sees the long view that as bad as what we're going to study in the tribulation, it won't even compare to what we're going to study in Revelation chapter 20. Hell is so awful, so terrible. But remember, the devil is God's devil, as Luther used to say. This writer can only do what God allows, and God is allowing him to do what he does to get a the attention of the remaining people who still have a chance to call upon Jesus in faith. Remember, God is over it all. Jesus said in the opening verses, he has the keys of death in Hades. Now, very quickly, beyond the breath of the devastation that this writer brings, God wants here in the remaining section to help us to understand the brutality of the devastation that he leaves. And this brutality called death comes in four ways. The first comes by sword. First, death comes by the sword. Again in verse 8, he was given permission to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword. This is a word not referring to war, but to murder. It refers to the deadliest assault that one human can bring upon another human being where people will murder one another with no regard for life. And I imagine, especially when there's widespread famine, people will do anything to get food. On a bad weekend in Chicago, on a bad month of Chicago, this pales. We're talking about millions and millions of murders across the planet. God hates murder, whether it's in the womb or outside of the womb. He hates the taking of innocent life. It breaks the heart of God to see people murdered in his own image. So death comes by the sword. Notice too, death comes by famine. So here's another famine that God is going to allow. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine. Beyond the sword, death comes with famine. Widespread starvation. Now, we've all seen those pictures of little children with their bloated bellies and their skinny little arms and legs and their protruding eyes. And it is rather still rare in our world, but not in this coming world. Over a billion people are going to die and many are going to come through starvation. Remember, 25% of the earth's population, that's equal to the entire number of people living in China and the United States are going to die during this time. Notice also death comes to the world by pestilence. Verse 8, authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, and with pestilence. Though not reflected in most English Bibles, the word pestilence is actually the name of the writer. It's the word thanatos. We get our English word directly from it. Thanatology is the study of death. This 
Death comes through death, literally. The King James renders it that. It calls death with death. Uh, but it's an idiom in Greek. And so we usually translate it plagues or pestilence. A pestilence or a plague is a pandemic that spreads rapidly, uh, and it often happens after dead bodies across the planet, when, when civilization begins to crumble, when the civilization's defenses uh, against disease begin to wane, when there's no sanitation, when there's no safe drinking water, then diseases like typhoid and dysentery begin to spread like wildfire. And so literally, the Greek reads that men are dying with death. But notice finally, death comes to the world by the wild beasts. Authority was given to kill with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, and then he adds, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, I do not know what you think of when you think of wild beasts. Maybe you think of lions and tigers and bears. Oh, no, you know. Um, I don't know what you think of, but actually the word that's used, it's one word in Greek, can refer to an animal as small as a rat. In fact, during the 1340s, 25 million people lost their life in Europe through rat fleas. Uh, there's over 100 species of rats, I'm told. They can multiply such that Mr. and Mrs. Rat can produce five, eight, up to 10 litters of rats in one year, depending on their species. Now, God does not specify how the death will come except to say here, by wild beasts. And certainly, if God wants to use normal everyday animals, he can. God can control the brain of a little animal and alter it. He controlled the brain of a little fish such that that fish swallowed a stator and Peter could go throw his line in the, in the Sea of Galilee and the first fish that came up had enough money to pay Jesus's and his tax. He can control the uh, brain of a little donkey where Jesus gets on a donkey as he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey that had never been ridden before. But it doesn't act like a wild bronco because it's under Christ's control. In another occasion, he makes a donkey literally speak English. On another occasion, during the night of his betrayal, he has a cock crow at just the right time to bring to Peter's memory a prophecy he had made. I don't know what God will use. He may use, Rick, you're a little Fido, and that little dog may turn on you. I hope you're not here for that time, Rick. Are you going to be here? He says no. He says no. All right. Listen, I know it's politically correct to worship Mother Nature, but PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals, are going to realize that they are not going to be able to do anything to help themselves. We're running out of time, but put out in the margin, would you? Ezekiel 14, 21 to 23. Um, the book of Revelation, as I told you, is filled with references to the Old Testament. Let me read a couple of verses. How much worse will it be when I send my four terrible judgments? Listen to them. This is in Ezekiel's day. Sword, famine, wild animals, and plagues. Same four we just read in the Revelation. That's limited to Jerusalem. These four that are coming are going to be across the planet. Then he gives them a hope word of hope, yet some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. They will come out to you, and when you see their behavior and their deeds, you will be consoled about the catastrophe I brought in Jerusalem for everything I brought on it, because you will know that it was not without reason that I have done anything 
which I have done in it, declares the Lord. It is not without reason. It is not without reason that God is letting this happen. It is a loving, passionate God still seeking and saving the lost. And a lot of people are going to die. But as we will see when we come to chapter 7, a lot of people are going to get saved. Now, I told you that there is a reason for the order of these horses. God prophesies these horses to come in this order. And Jesus spoke of the exact same thing in Matthew chapter 24. Do you remember it says, and he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately. Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And if you've read the Olivet Discourse carefully, you discover it perfectly parallels Revelation chapter 6 and the chapters that will follow. And of course, as you read the Old Testament, you discover that there is a time, it's called the day of the Lord, it's never happened yet, a time of terrible horror upon the earth that will then follow with the king, the Messiah, sitting on David's throne. That's never happened. The governments of this world never rested on Jesus' shoulders. And yet at the birth of God's son, Gabriel said, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Zephaniah, speaking of this horrible day, says, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Isaiah, in describing this coming day, uses a similar figure. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. He says, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. That's never happened. It's going to happen. Thus, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. The birth pangs haven't happened yet, but they're going to happen. Here's a chart, maybe help you to think through it. First comes false messiahs, all of that discourse. Matthew 24, Luke chapter 21, uh, Mark chapter 13 as well. You find the all of that discourse listed in three places the white horse of deception comes. There'll be wars and rumors of war. That's the red horse. There'll be famines. That's the black horse. There'll be death. That's the ashen horse. Think about it. Jesus said in 24, 5, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. With the church having been raptured, there'll be a void. Many false messiahs will come and one will come to the forefront. He went on to say, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of war. See to it that you're not frightened, for these things must take place, but that is not yet the end. That's fulfilled in the red horse, a time of unparalleled war, and it's so widespread, it's on everyone's lips, the rumor of another war. Then Jesus said, in various places there will be famine. That's the black horse of famine. And then he speaks of pestilence. In Luke's gospel, he says, and there will be a great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famines. It's exactly what we see here. And this all happens in the first half of the great tribulation. Now, just like a woman who goes into labor, the birth pangs increase in number and intensity. And you see that. First, the rider and the white horse, he comes with no arrows. Then the rider on the red horse, he comes with a single sword. 
than the rider on the black horse. He comes with two means in which to bring death, economic collapse and famine. Then the rider on the ashen horse, he comes with four specific ways in which to kill. And then we haven't even reached the midpoint. Therefore, the midpoint, dead center of the seven years, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet, then look out, because then you will have the trumpet and the seal judgments. For then there will be a time of great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Friends, we haven't seen anything yet. Wait till we come to the trumpet and the bowl of judgments. You say, this is cruel. It's not cruel. It's called justice and mercy. God is bringing retribution on the unbelievers. And he's ringing the bell of those who are not so hard in heart yet that they might yet believe. The birth pangs haven't started yet. So you got a hell, Lindsay, he writes a book, oh, look at all these earthquakes, and we had this many in this century, and this many in this century, and interesting. But that's not, not the birth pangs. Now, is there significance in all these earthquakes and famines? And Yes, there is. How are they significant? Because it tells you the pregnancy has arrived and the water is ready to break. But it will break after the rapture of the church. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't want to be here for this time in human history. Jesus, without a word of exaggeration, because he cannot lie, says it will be the worst time this world has ever known. And if you know that as a Christian, I hope you care about your loved ones and your neighbors and your friends and your co-workers, that you care enough to warn them, that you care enough to sit through this sermon because you want to know God's truth and you want to engage in things that really matter in this life and not just get home to your football game this afternoon. These are important things. These are things that matter. And we would do well to heed God's Word. Father, thank You for what we've read this morning. Give us eyes to see it. Give us wills to respond to it. You've told us that we are to go and to seek and to save that which is lost. That is, you have been sent by the Father, so you have sent us. I pray today, Father, for someone here who is not sure that heaven is truly their home. Help them to realize that there's nothing they can do to earn it, that Jesus paid it all, and they owe everything to him. Help them in simple childlike faith to say, Jesus, save me. And help us as a church to care not just about ourselves, but about others, to reach out to those who are lost this week and in any way that you would give us to share Christ with them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen again to today's message, The Pale Horse of Devastation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV17. Tomorrow we begin a look at the rest of Revelation 6 in a message entitled, Two Opposite Worlds. Join us then as we search the scriptures.